Empire of the Sun. Suns. Empire of the Suns. Wet like on book. Wet like on book. Wet like on book. Arizona Sports presents the Empire of the Suns podcast. Empire of the Suns. Empire of the Suns podcast. My name is Kellen Olson, joined as always by Kevin Zerman. Hello, Kevin. Thanks for coming on during your off day. That's no longer an off day. We appreciate it. Oh, you know, it's that time of year, bud. We're we're ready to go. You you get like two moments, right? You get that fortunately for us, um, it's it's three, right? Because before back in the day it was okay. We're really excited for trade deadline, and then we're really excited for the draft. And now, and now it's three, right? We get pumped for the trade deadline. We get pumped for the playoffs, postseason. Then we get pumped for the draft, offseason, free agency, like all that kind of stuff, right? That ties into when they're bad too. But when they're bad, you don't expect them to make these humongous trades or humongous signings or whatever. But all that kind of stuff is in play when you're a good team, and that's what they are right now. So yeah, it's that time of year where. I think I have an off day when I go to sleep and I wake up and it's like, it's not an off day anymore. That's okay. That's okay, buddy. We're, we're doing well. Uh, we're doing well because we're covering a pretty good basketball team right now. In terms of the recent trends, the Suns have won six of their last seven. We'll quickly dip into just how the team has played in the last two weeks, how the West standings look again, going forward every single week, we're going to update the West standings, look at any injuries that have happened and any kind of trends in the, in the standings, because it's that it's that hectic and that crazy. The the stat that I just put out there is that over half of the teams in the Western Conference now have twenty five or twenty six losses as of Tuesday afternoon. Uh, that is the Clippers, Mavericks, Suns, Pelicans, Timberwolves, Jazz, and Thunder, and the Blazers. That that is crazy times. We'll get to that in a bit, though. And then, of course, most of what we're going to talk about today is the trade deadline. I wrote a mega preview on the site that you can read that will cover. A bit of what we're talking about, but we're going to get into more nuanced discussions about specific players. We're going to kind of reroute our previous discussions on some targets we talked about in the summer. And then there are a couple of new ones that have come up in the last two, three weeks and rumors and reports that we'll get to. But to start with the basketball, six of their last seven, I think the two main takeaways from this game, Kevin, are Chris Paul looks Chris Paul looks back um, it, physically. He, his movements just look a lot more similar to what we're seeing. And of course the productivity has backed that up as well. But I think we got to start with Mikel Bridges again, because while we uh, did this whole spiel on him and I wrote this huge thing on how he had looked as an on-ball scorer, we did not see him closing out games. And he did that in overtime against San Antonio. And he did that against Toronto. San Antonio was the best two minutes by a son not named Devin the entire season while Toronto was just he ran two of uh, three straight plays scored on two of them and then the third one still resulted in points off a huge rebound by Torrey Craig but to see him uh, activate this part of his game in in crunch time do I think that there's going to be a game five in Dallas when Mikel Bridges is commanding the crunch time offense probably not but the fact that they have that as an option that has worked in the regular season is is a huge uh, development for them, to say the least. What do you? I, I think that's where we kind of go, Kevin. Is we can talk about, of course, like how great it is to see him playing like this. But of course, people want to have their takes and their declarations. So let's just start there. How much are you willing to take away from this kind of little two game sample size where we got to see not only Point Mikel 
alongside Chris Paul, but uh, close out Mikel as well. I mean, I, I take a lot out of it just because I, I think he's on everyone's radar. We've t- discussed that to this point. Um, he's gone through all the motions and seen things he hasn't seen, and now he's just starting to attack um, even when teams are prepared for him. And uh, you look at, like, I, I'm, I was looking at Nikias Duncan is doing his thread of the game last night, and there's so much of just attention paid on him and Fred Van Vliet trying to get under his skin and bust up like just the rhythm when he's playing point guard as he brings it up. And then he still just aggressively attacks it, um, a, a pick and roll and, and gets his mid range spot and, and hits a shot. And that's stuff to me where how he does it is just more confident. There's a lot of wiggle and a lot more like, puts Fred Van Vietley in jail, um, uses his off arm to kind of brush him on to the other side of the screen, stuff like that, where it's just all coming together, I guess. And I, I think there's a lot to be said for that when teams have scouted you and are scouting you to stop you. I think, Kevin, what I've seen is, and the reason why, if you are like completely dismissing this uh, or or mostly dismissing this as just like a good 10 dozen games for him or whatever. I think you got to look at the confidence that he's playing with first and foremost, which goes to what you're saying. But what what is now happening is the confidence is unlocking another part of his game where uh, I, I saw like Mike Hill, Sam Cooper, and, and you and I probably have similar reactions, Kevin, where in the second quarter when he was running point guard, when Chris was out, he had two different passes. He had a no look to Damian Lee on a drive uh, that was a kick out. And then he also had a like lead bounce pass to DeAndre. And I was like, who the, like, who is that? Because not only for him to have those passes in his arsenal, which I I don't think we knew before, before that second quarter, to be honest, but also the confidence to throw those passes now um, is, is, is pretty absurd because typically we see guys attempt those a couple of times here and there, and we kind of get a feel for like, okay, Mikel is getting really good at just throwing the ball really high near the basket and knowing DeAndre is going to jump up and get it. Like that's a pass, for example, we've seen him nail uh, over the last couple of months specifically, but even going back a couple of years. But those kind of came out of nowhere. And with what you're talking about too, so the, the, there's three stages for me. There's the, the confidence that he has found. There is the confidence unlocking certain parts of his game. And then there's those two kind of coming together to have him be playing with this level of intensity uh, to his movements. Because if you go to those elbow sets in the end of the Toronto game, like usually in those sets, he's not necessarily cruising, but he's playing at a certain rhythm. But now he is flying around in those actions because he knows it's crunch time. He knows that Toronto knows that the set that's coming and he has to like be at a 10 out of 10 in terms of how fast he's moving around. Like he can't pace himself a bit to catch it in a rhythm and make sure he's taking a lot of really difficult shots is kind of what I'm getting at here. Because to what you were mentioning, the one that Nakai has threaded together with the Fred Van Vliet one, like that ends in a difficult shot where he's kind of off balance a bit because of all the pestering and putting him in jail and he still made it. Uh, the one over Sohan in San Antonio, that was a really tough shot. And now he's just starting to become a tough shot maker. And that's like the the four-step process that I'm kind of seeing is like all of this is kind of leading to him becoming a tough shot maker in a way where he was just like he had a really nice touch in the mid-range, but it wasn't necessarily him shooting over like really tough contests, off balance and in weird situations. But now he's doing that too. And, and that to me is something to really build off for him 
going forward. I think that it's been really interesting and, and, and the most positive part of this has been that Chris Paul has been with him on the floor while this has happened. Because if you and I, if you or I would have played a game three weeks ago and said, who is it going to be harder for him to kind of be on the floor with and still get the ball a bit? We, we would have said Chris over book. We probably would have said that just because of how much Chris runs. And to that point, Chris is the guy still calling out the sets that Mikel is, is running. Uh, to that point. And, but to see it happen with Chris on the court has just been incredibly encouraging. And again, are, are we going to see this in like the playoffs? Or are we going to see this in really crucial moments? Maybe a possession here and there. We're not, I'm not willing to go any further than that. But the fact that he is kind of having this moment right now, Kevin, where I, I hesitate to. So if this, if this continues to some sort of level where he's averaging like, 18 plus a game and we see more so we see the confidence and the movements that I talked about, like the tough shot making and all that stuff. If we see this for the next 30 games, this is, this is actually a leap. Like we talk about the leap for players and players going through a leap. This is actually a leap and it would be a leap to the extent where I would say Booker's like third season is he, is the only other time I would say in this era of the Suns where I've seen a young player, like go through an emergence like this. Like it's, it's really impressive now am i saying he's the next Kawhi and he's going to make nine all nba teams or whatever no but to see a player go through a real leap like a real stepping their game up like two three levels in a season that's basically what he's doing right now yeah yeah i mean to me just going back to even when we podcasted two months ago and he was struggling or one month ago to me the question was like he just doesn't look like he's like mentally ready to take this leap and Throughout his whole career, I think you could say he played it safe, right? He he wasn't a high turnover guy. He didn't take tough shots. If he drove um, and someone kind of cut him off, he was just going to be like, okay, I'm going to make a pass out of this. I'm a smart basketball player. And when you do all that, you don't really see like the, the stuff he probably works on individually, right? You don't see um, the ball handling. You don't see those passes you were talking about him whipping around that he might try and practice maybe. Um, because he, he wants to be a good teammate. That was his role. Um, and now he's not being safe anymore. And I think when you look at his passing, he's taking more risks, obviously the tough shot making, you have to say, I'm, I'm confident enough in taking these tough shots. Um, but I think that's where like all the DA struggles aside, like DA, we don't know, right. We don't know if he actually has that good of a three point shot. Cause he hardly takes it. Um, I, I, I can guess that it's not there, but I think the one DA play, when you look back one a couple of years ago, I think Kevin Durant might have been on the Warriors, but like the shot clock was winding down and he hit the step back turnaround thing over KD that like was a funny moment because KD just looked at him like, what did you just do? Um, and that was one of those moments where it's like, oh, do you have more in the tool bag than we know? Um, and I guess what I'm thinking of that, I'm thinking of that because DA, we don't know, right? Um, but Mikel, we're seeing like all of that come out. We see more ball handling than we've ever seen. We see better passes than we've ever seen. And now you kind of recategorize how you think, how good you think he can be. So I, I think we're at that point. Um, I don't know how good he'll be. Is he going to be Chris Middleton one day? I don't know, but at least now I can move the needle and say like, there's a chance, there's a chance. Yeah, they were kind of due for one of these, Kevin. He's he's 26. Like it so something like this, like having a season like this where you see just like this dramatic rise in one of his specific abilities 
in the game. And it so happens to be the most important one, Kevin, which is on ball creation. But uh, the, the Suns were kind of due for one of their players to kind of hit this run, whether it was DeAndre, Mikel, or Cam. And and Mikel appears to be the guy undergoing it for now. Over the last five games for him, 22 points, shooting 49%. And those numbers go back like a dozen games now at this point with the, the high scoring. Also in the last five games, Chris Paul, 22 points, shooting 54% from the field, 10 assists, two turnovers, six rebounds. Uh, it just looks as simple as he's physically there, Kevin. And to uh, to our point and something that we have been talking about a lot on this podcast over this season specifically more than any other one, Mikel jokingly but not really jokingly said it's kind of good when Chris gets hurt with his little stuff because it makes him rest, like it makes him give his body time. And, and he kind of basically said, like, good, like sit down, rest, like you need to take care of of your body in that kind of way. Uh, one thing I will say, Kevin, over those last five games, 39 minutes a game for uh, Mikel, 36 for Chris, campaign Landry Shaman and Den Booker could not come back soon enough, or they will make some moves at the deadline to address this, Kevin. But those, those minute totals, like, okay, it's been a couple of weeks, like it's been a week or two, that's fine. But if that goes on any longer, they're asking for a disaster there. They really are. You want to go to the West? Let's do it. Boy, uh, the New Orleans Pelicans are the team we should spotlight. They have lost eight straight. They're one and nine in their last 10. We mentioned Brandon Ingram on the last episode. He did return, but he's still not doing the every game thing. He did not play in a blowout loss to the Bucs. Uh, they played tonight against the Denver Nuggets. That should be a fun one to watch, just considering like a check-in with the Pelicans who are one and nine in their last 10, like we said. Not really any crazy movement anywhere. The Warriors have won three in a row. The Suns are now in a three-way tie for fifth with Golden State, Dallas, and themselves, of course. And then a half game behind them are the Pelicans and Timberwolves. A game back of the Suns are the Jazz. Two games back are the Thunder and Blazers. The Lakers, by the way, Kevin, um, basically every team except New Orleans in like this muddled-up mess has found some level of stability. And and what I mean by that is if I kind of go through the numbers right here, the Clippers are six and four in their last 10, but they had just come off a stretch, Kevin, where they had won five in a row. Each team had kind of put together these little strings of like winning a few in a row. The Lakers did that about three weeks ago to kind of get back in the hunt. But since then, they haven't been able to do much. They've lost two straight. Anthony Davis is back, but they're 23 and 28. So they're a team that when we check back in next week, we'll see how they do over the next couple of games. Because if they have another, that's how uh, we talk about margin for error, Kevin. If if the Lakers just have two or three more weeks like this, they could suddenly be like out of this, like not completely out of it, but in like a okay, you guys need to like put together like seven or eight straight wins to really, really get back in the hunt. Uh, but those were that's what really stood out to me. And then of course we'll talk about the deadline in a bit. But will like the Jazz and Blazers kind of be the default teams to drop out of this because they sell at the deadline? Who will buy? We'll get into that more in a bit. Did anything catch your eye in the West last week? I need to look at the Warriors. They've won three straight. Um, let's see. They've beat Memphis, Toronto, OKC. So obviously two of those, not that impressive. Memphis was a slim win. OKC okay, is, Kevin. Uh, they, they've been one of the best teams yeah. in the league this month. Yeah, that's an impressive win. Yeah, I don't know if Memphis is missing people, but Steph is kind of catching fire, it looks like, just looking at 30-point games that he's been having. So, I mean... Look, that team I think is going to go on a run. I think they're going to figure things out kind of like kind of like we expected with the Suns, right? Like once they're healthy enough, 
um, and there's going to be a little urgency, these teams can kind of flip a switch um, and, and have enough firepower to do that and experience to do that. But yeah, otherwise it's a mess. Um, Sacramento and Clippers are still kind of hanging up there though at the top and not really, well, Clippers are only half game off. So I guess that's not true, but well, the Clippers, the Clippers are in that range now where they could join that group of of Sacramento. We're waiting to see if Memphis or Denver will slip. Denver has lost two in a row, but they're still seven and a half games ahead of the Clippers who were in fourth. So I think that's kind of the that's a really good point to bring up. We're watching the Lakers on the bottom, but at the top, will a team like the Clippers or the Warriors join that Kings tier? That second tier that is below the Grizzlies and the Nuggets. Will the Nuggets or Grizzlies drop out of that? By the way, on your Warriors point, in the last 10 games, the uh, Splash, what do we call the three of them? The, the Splash Brothers, and then what's Jordan Poole? He's just another Splash. Yeah, and I, I guess. I don't know. Uh, okay, well, uh, Steph Curry in his last <laughs> uh, nine games, 29 points per game, shooting 48 from the field. Clay 23 a game, 44 from the field. And then Jordan Poole, 22 a game, 49 from the field. So it turns out when all your are your shooty hoop guys are, are are making those baskets, Kev, it uh it does a good thing to you. It does a good thing to you. Hey, the trade deadline's next week. You want to talk about it? We might have some things to talk about. Yeah, let's do it. We might have some. So just as a reset, this is more or less what I wrote on the site on ArizonaSports.com, but just to kind of set where we are. We can agree, Kevin, and I think everyone listening can agree that for the Suns to be seriously looked at as a team that can make the finals right now, they do need to make a small upgrade of some sort uh, at the deadline. Now, a lot of that could come just automatically with the Jay Crowder trade, but I think the spots that we're looking at are still third ball handler. So we're talking about the first ball handler off the bench. We're talking about the guard spot next to Cameron Payne as well. Landry Shamit just still hasn't found stability in his play this year. And then I think first wing off the bench has been something that has stood out to me a lot more in the last month and a half, two months, thinking about it more. I think Torrey Craig has been good this year, relatively so, Kevin. But there has been a slight decline or, or even like a notable decline, I would say, in his defensive play this year for whatever reason. Maybe as the sun stabilized more defensively, he'll be better there by default. But I still think even if you get the Torrey Craig from two years ago, who was really, really good, we've had like a mix, I would say. Like last year, he was not that great. Two years ago, he was pretty darn good. Somewhere in the middle is where we've landed this year, but I still think you need an upgrade and Tori's more of that fourth wing. So that first wing off the bench, the tools to get it done again, to refresh the Suns have plenty of them at their disposal. They are one of the, one of the few contenders in the league, quite honestly, that has this level of flexibility. And, and I think you could go as far as arguing that they maybe have the most flexibility of any contender in terms of trying to get something done or, or, or potential contender. I'll phrase it as that Kevin potential contender. Mm-hmm. That sounds that sounds better. Jay Crowder, $10.1 million expiring deal. Dario Sarge, $9.4 million expiring deal. They own all of their picks, Kevin, and they do not owe anyone uh, and they don't uh, have any picks incoming from another team. They are the only team in the league that has that. If you go on Real GM's future picks and all their pages, they're the only team that has both sections blank. It's pretty incredible. Um, with all of that in mind, Kevin, we have to keep in mind that even though a lot of these issues will not issues, but all of these um, items on the docket, we'll phrase it as, will probably come up more in the off season. There is still the DeAndre Ayton thing. That's a humongous salary. They did not agree to a contract extension with him. They matched his offer sheet. Chris Paul has fifteen million dollars of his thirty million next season guaranteed. It is fully non guaranteed with a team option the year after that. Cam Johnson, of course, is headed to restricted free agency. And then I think Landry Shaman is the guy to keep an eye on, Kevin, because he has $10.2 million 
on his books next year. And then the next two years are non-guaranteed. So while you can get out that money in a year, uh, in, in two years, I should say, would you rather just kind of get off of it a year early, get him for an expiring, something like that? I think he's at least worth mentioning with that in mind. And all of this, of course, comes down to Matt Ishbia. Everything reported, and it, there has been no reporting otherwise uh, to indicate that, yes, he is still on track to own the team and take over the team before the trade deadline. Baxter Holmes reported that a press conference is expected on February 8th, which is, of course, the day before the deadline, going to be a fun 36 hours for us. And he changes everything here because if he comes in here, Kevin, and he says, like, we'll take on long-term salary. If we're looking at a situation next year where we're paying book this, we're paying Chris this, we're paying Mikel this, we're paying DeAndre this, and we're going to extend Cam, and we're going to trade for this guy that's worth 10 to $20 million who has money on the books for next year, that's fine. If it helps us win, that's fine. That is a huge change for them because, of course, Kevin, that is not something that you would have expected Robert Sarver to do because we talked about like their luxury tax situation right now. They're around 30 to $40 million, which is pretty reasonable. But once you start to get in the unreasonable range, which is where they could head with those numbers, that's where you look at Ishbia and say, like, will he commit to winning to that kind of level that few owners across the league will do? Or will he do the opposite, Kevin? Now, all of the reports have indicated that he wants to win. He's willing to trade picks, whatever we've kind of heard in that regard, has indicated that as such. But, of course, you just have to mention the possibility of reducing their tax bill in some sort of ways just with the way their finances and their salaries are kind of set up right now. Is there anything you wanted to hit on before we look at specific players? Anything like as a refresher of sorts on on the conversation itself surrounding the team? I mean, I just wanted, if we don't podcast again, I, I think DA is basically untradeable. Maybe a couple teams would take him and you would have to loop in. Obviously, Suns want something big there back, but I, I, I think we should hit on that just because January 15th was the date. We're all circling this whole summer. We kind of got lost as they got off to a strong start to the year. Um, people are probably back on that since he's not played well lately, but I just think that salary, that length, um, that that's pretty much not, not on the table really, I would say. Yeah, he'll, he'll come up later, but we can have the conversation right now. Um, I, I do not believe that he is untradeable, but I believe there is a reason to believe that his value has decreased this season specifically. It's no secret that his defensive play this year has dropped off. Now, this is the great discussion, Kevin, that we love so much. Remember when the Suns were winning 20 games and we were trying to debate who was good and who was not good defensively. It's still pretty complicated in this kind of situation when a team is good. Um, I will say that he has not been as good defensively. This is probably, I would, I'll, I'll phrase it like this. This is the worst that he has been defensively since the Ricky Rubio year and maybe you would go beyond that. Like maybe you would go to the year before that. Like there has been a pretty noticeable drop off in his defensive play. And specifically, Kevin, I, I kind of joked to Dwayne Rankin, like you can't make up the timing right now. The Dallas game, there are a couple of uh, DA brain farts that we've come to know that are happening when the game is on the line. And then we saw it again in the San Antonio game. He airballs a hook shot. And then he comes down, uh, isn't it? Gets sealed out by Pirtle. Pirtle nearly gets the game-winning putback because of that. 
And then this game against Toronto, there were still some of those moments. He got blocked by Fred Van Vliet. Nakias, we mentioned that tweet he was putting together. He was flummoxed by that play specifically where he wasn't able to go up strong against Van Vliet. And those moments, those brain farts, those like disconnected segments have been more frequent, especially in the last week. And like the timing with everything um, is is just strange. Like the timing of it happening around the deadline. I'm not, I'm not going to say there's anything more into it. But I think you're at the point now, Kevin, with seeing this and seeing how hard this team is trying to get him involved and how would you agree that they're overemphasizing getting him the ball in the last week specifically? feels like they're trying yeah. almost too hard now. It feels like they went from not trying to trying way too hard to get him the ball now. They like can't figure out the balance. I think there's value in over trying, though, and that's yeah. just getting repetitions, giving him looks, making him make mistakes, and then hopefully he gets over them because – like you have to get the best out of him. And I've said this since the summer, you got to get the best out of him, regardless of whether you think you want to trade him, regardless of his flaws. Um, Obviously this is a good team and you want to keep talented players. And regardless of what you think of him, he's a starting center and you got to make him the best. And who knows if he puts together, like I don't even remember two years ago, was he having that great of a season before, um, they went on a finals run. I, I wouldn't say so. There were still those inconsistencies. Now he was, that's probably his best season. Um, maybe last, I don't even know, but it was, it was his best year was last year. Cause remember two years ago, it was going into the, uh, time for him, for his extension to come up. And we were saying if the brain farts that have been more consistent, this regular season come up during the playoffs, they've got to consider trading him. I remember writing that specifically. And then he goes out in the playoffs and destroys everyone. We're like, pay that guy, like, but just pay that guy. Uh, And then last year I think was his best overall season, I think. Uh, But two years ago, you can argue like with the playoffs overriding the regular season, but yeah, this was more par for the course of two regular seasons ago, I guess. Right. So you don't know what if he puts together another big, uh, playoff run and it's suddenly they are contender status because of that so that's that's the complicated part about this dude and and that contract yeah that so two things on that one um we we literally saw devin booker doing the twitter reply guy thing and what i mean by that is like he was motioning like dunking the ball as opposed to laying it into deandre i believe it was in san antonio uh i saw him during the uh Dallas game there was a moment where he like just kind of like wasn't he just went through the motions for three straight possessions because he was mad about something uh David thinks it was because uh Ish was missing threes I'm, I'm I, it could have been something else but right after that Devin sought him out talked to him for a while and then DeAndre was playing more focused and more engaged but those kinds of moments and then watching how other players are reacting to him and this is where uh big fans of DeAndre Ayton will not agree probably and think that I'm exaggerating or whatever, but I'm just, again, my neutral provided sense of watching everything and trying to pick up everything. I've noticed now more than ever his teammates like body language when he does these things and his teammates like conversations with him. I think it's been more frequent, especially over the last month. Tory Craig like can't help himself anymore <laughs> on the, on the play last night where Scotty Barnes got the rebound and then shot it uncontested and Deandre wasn't in the area. You could see him just like, and that goes back to the Javon Carter moment from like three years ago, like Javon Carter and Torrey Craig's the same, they, they try their hardest every single possession out there. So for those guys 
to see that uh, it, it lights them up specifically. And, and yeah, like Tori is someone who specifically can't really help himself. So, so that's, that's one part of this. And, and then the other part of it that, that I wanted to bring up as well, it, I, I think there is a reason now to, and, and let me know if you agree or, or disagree, but I think, there is a reason now, and I'm not saying if I believe this or not, but there's a reason now to doubt if like they can win a title with him just based on how this season has gone specifically, especially defensively. I think there are reasons to doubt if they can just win with him right now. I, I don't know where I land on that space, but to go back to your point, Kevin, uh, you'll remember me writing this when they signed him. I said basically, or not, not when he was signed, but when other teams were looking to sign him, I was like the team that signs him whether it's Phoenix or someone else is going to have to understand that they don't know what version of him they are going to get. Are you going to get the Dallas series or the new Orleans series? Are you going to get the 2021 playoff run? Or are you going to get the regular season run from him? Then you just aren't at this point. We're five years in. You don't know which version of him you're going to get. We have learned that on a consistent basis. And you just have to understand that that's part of the territory and part of the risk, I guess, the high ceiling, low floor of him on a not a night to night basis specifically, but over more cumulative stretches and the volatility of that. I think I've noticed it more and more affecting the team this year. Do you, do you agree? Yeah. And I agree with you. I don't know if they can win a title with him at center um, because it is volatile. Right. And I think if you're Monty Williams, like, as as much as he might know and not know that he doesn't know how to motivate him and keep him engaged and all that, they're trying really hard, like you said, with Book talking to him and all that stuff. But, like, if you're Monty Williams, you have, one, I think he's very center-focused. Like, he obviously doesn't play small ball, like, without a center very often. And he sees value in that. So maybe that's part of, like, trying with DeAndre, but... He certainly, like, as much as DeAndre probably drives him nuts, still plays DeAndre a lot. Like, Nick Nurse would have benched this dude and played him 17 minutes here and there or just benched him completely at this point, I think. Yeah. And, and Monty, Monty is, like, very much, like, I, I'm afraid that it it might be he likes centers, but it also could be I'm afraid if I did that once or twice, then this could tailspin into really bad place. So he he's in a tough spot and, and I don't know, like I'm sure they're looking for answers still on how to keep Deandre engaged and playing at his best. But that's, that's the challenge of this is it's, he likes, he fits this team's style and I think they're legit reasons not to just say you're benched because then you get even less out of him. Right. And it's worth noting, I'm glad you brought that up, that the Dallas game and the Toronto game were the two specifically where, especially with how his his uh, other, Biombo, Sarich, whoever it was, like last night it was Sarich, and who knows how he would have survived out there defensively at the end. But Sarich was playing super well, and then uh, Thursday it was just they were playing better with him on the on the bench. And those were both times where I felt like it was the right decision to sit him, even with his status in mind. Like, not just like that he's the star, he's a 
not uh, looking at him like a regular player, like every other player that doesn't have a certain stature, not looking at it like that, like uh, taking in the fact that he is a player of his stature that makes this much money. It felt like it was the right decision to not play him with how much this team needs to win games or not let him finish the game. I I should say, but Monty is, is a different type of coach. And we've seen those types of moments, like with Mikel in the Cavs game a, a month ago, when he let him take the shot, like he did with the bench I, two games ago, I want to say against uh, San Antonio when he lit, he spoke out against uh, the bench and just said they didn't bring energy and all that kind of stuff. And then they brought that energy in San Antonio and then he left them out yeah. there a couple more minutes because that that's the kind of thing that money does. So uh, all of that is to say that the last thing that I want to bring up on this, Kevin, and this is where we get into conspiracy theories and I'm not talking about Reddit threads on stat tracking, but have you noticed how none of the big dogs on reporting talk about him in these trades at all? Like they just don't bring him up. Like we talk about Toronto and Siakam or Ananobi, or we talk about even Durant last summer, Kevin, it felt like no one was bringing his name up. And I don't know if this is a bloody Mary situation. I don't know what it is, but he just doesn't get talked about. And again, is that because he is not as tradable as we think behind closed doors. Is that because they just don't want his name getting out there in trade rumors? I don't know, but it just feels like he doesn't get like talked about in these, in these reports anymore. And it's kind of bizarre considering how everything we have seen and everything that uh, I'm sure the team is a, like, they're a hundred percent of what they know far better than us. Like what's been going on with his play the last couple of weeks specifically. And honestly, the last tweet that one of those guys said, and and put trade in DeAndre Ayton in like a tweet was probably when he like when they matched the offer sheet last summer. Like that's the last thing I can think of. Um because I think like Woj brought up January 15th, that's that's when he can be traded uh most every other team other than the Pacers. So yeah, I, I think there are multiple reasons. It's the money, it's the long term contract, it's how he's played. Um yeah. All right, man. Let's talk trade targets, huh? Yeah. 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 Okay, Kevin, do you want to start with the more big picture, big swinging trades that seem to be potentially out there? Or do you want to go more small and like look at the guys that we like specifically that they could potentially more realistically get without giving up a lot? Let's go with what we like. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of go uh, rapid fire here. Uh, the guy that I like the most for them still is Boyan Bogdanovich. And because of that new extension that he got with Detroit, he's a guy you can get for, for like a, giving up a first round pick for him now isn't, isn't as crazy as it once was because you do have some future flexibility there. Now, this is where Ishbia really factors in specifically because that is down for 20 million next year. And then the year after that is 19 million. So you've got two years, 39 million left after this season. So that would really need to be a commitment to winning in that kind of regard and really going up the tax bill. But you look at what this team needs. Uh, James Jones was at uh Brightside night last night, had his uh, yearly one-on-one with Dave King. And he, he sort of cut off Dave when Dave was asking his trade deadline question and like what they need. And James Jones, the first thing he said was shooting and Boyan is the best shooter available. Uh, if he is available, the uh, what I heard on ESPN, Zach Lowe, uh, ESPN, Zach Lowe on the low post, I don't know if he he wasn't. I, I let me rephrase. He was not reporting anything, but I think that the basic scuttlebutt here from around the league and from other reporting that I've gained elsewhere is that 
it's not just like you can get him for a protected first round pick. Like Detroit wants a pretty good first round pick for him right now. If they're going to give him up, that might just be posturing. We'll see. But this year with the Pistons, he's shooting 42% from three on six threes a game. He's a lifetime 39% shooter. We talked a lot about him in the summer. He's a guy that gets to the line this year. He's averaging five free throws per game. Kevin and shooting 88% there. That is a career high on, on takes there. Averaging a career high as well with 2.7 assists per game, three and a half rebounds, 21 points per game. That is also a career high for him. So you can see from a statistical standpoint why they're posturing quite a bit. But he he's perfect off the bench, Kevin. If you had to think of like a prototypical score for them off the bench, they need one at the wing. They need a secondary creator. They need some shooting as well. Defense, okay. But we're not talking about the end of the game, Kevin. Cam Johnson can be back out there. That's fine. I I think he makes all the sense in the world. And if they give up their unprotected first round pick this year, I think that's fine. I don't see a, an issue with that. Do you have any sort of... Um, hesitation with him because I think he just makes all the sense in the world. And, and the only reason would be money. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess if I'm, this is nitpicking cause I like him a lot. He can honestly underrated, like as a one-on-one scorer um, in the league beyond just being a shooter. But if I'm wanting to give up a first round pick this year and go for it, I think I want to fill the other needs more. And that's like, can you get more dribble guys? Can you get a better defender? Um, like how much can you play him and Cam Johnson at the same time? I guess is my question. Um, and that's this, this is tough. Cause it's, I don't think it's very likely, but I love Gary Trent jr. And that might just be a me thing, but for what the Suns are, like, I know he's not a, um, like, playmaker off the ball that's a stretch with him but he can shoot the crap out of it tough defender like averaging 18 points a game this year and to me that fits a need down at the guard depth where it's like then you don't have to worry about Landry Shaman and I don't know if he's still on the team in this scenario because you just throw a couple expirings in there and 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 you probably have to throw a pretty good pick for a guy like that but to me, there's a little more value there just because of, again, the fear if Chris Paul is hurt, if Devin Booker's hurt, then you're more survivable. Whereas I don't know how good this team is if one of those guys got hurt and you have Boyan Bogdanovich um, at, at forward kind of eating into Cam Johnson's minutes. And Trent, like less of a certifiable bad defender, right? Like he com- competes, has the physical tools. Yeah. He's the weakest defender out there for the Suns if he's out there, but that's on a team that has a bunch of very solid defenders. $18.5 million uh, player option next year, Kevin, which is interesting. Like the with the amount of teams out there that, that have space and like the market that's out there, maybe it would be a good idea for him to just trigger that player option. I'm not sure if he's going to get $18 million a year. Maybe he just wants long-term flexibility. Other hesitation on Boyan, which people are screaming at their uh, speakers or to themselves in their cars like psychos like me. Uh, Boyan is 33. He's going to be 34, 35 going into those two other years. But as I've said with Eric Gordon, Kevin, there's a little risk here somewhere and, and in the sake of con- for the sake of contending. But to more of what you've been talking about, Kevin, there are some interesting two-for-one potentials out there, and what I mean by that is in, in New York, you could get a combination of Emmanuel Quickly or Cam Reddish. In Utah, you could get a combination of Jordan Clarkson, Malik Beasley, and Jared Vanderbilt. There's Charlotte with Rozier and McDaniels. I'm not, I'm not so sure 
on that one specifically are, are any of those three packages do they entice you a bit more than more than the other of, of those like kind of you could get two guys here for Crowder and a pick potentially yeah I mean the, the Clarkson Vanderbilt makes a lot of sense obviously you don't want to I don't know if we should talk on go down this road but you don't want to give up Cam Johnson for like Vanderbilt I don't think no uh, you you want to keep him in that deal and just use a pick in that situation but if there's some way you could get that deal that gives you that wing depth that we talked about, that gives you um, Jordan Clarkson basically solves your, your guard worries, I think um, in the immediate future. So yeah, I like that one a lot. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know about Rogier McDaniels. I don't know if McDaniels moves the needle uh, Rogier's. I know he had good seasons in Boston and, and played well in some playoff series, but I just am not sure he's a son's fit. If that makes sense. I think both of these are a campaign question, Kevin, uh, quickly and Clarkson specifically. Now, the interesting thing about Cam, Kevin, is what is the campaign question? Is it his play or is it his health? Yeah. Uh, I have not seen him on the court yet uh, doing anything. Now, he could be doing stuff behind closed doors for all I know. I, I'm not sure exactly, but the clear, I, I try really hard and look at it from every time there's a new head coach and kind of look at it, how it happens in their uh, structure and points that we can point to as clear signs of progression. And for Cam, for every guy, pretty much it's like, okay, they're back out there after practice and shoot around, like doing their shooting. That's when we're let in and, and allowed to see stuff, which is after everything or anything interesting has happened. They're just doing shooting drills. And then they and then they leave for the day, go do more conditioning or, or weight work uh, in the back, whatever. But guys out on the court doing court work in that sense uh, have not seen him there. And then we have not seen him obviously like pregame in his like normal spot or anything like that. Like to be clear, Devin Booker has been in, in his shooting group now for like two weeks. So it's not like an indicator that they're going to come back right away. But to not see him out there at all, Landry Shamit was doing standstill kind of shooting. He was doing like the one-handed, like a, the drill you do when you're when you're a seven-year-old where you hold the ball up with your palm facing up, turn it back around and, and flick it. Like he was doing that kind of very basic, slow stuff. Uh, Landry Shamit was, but Payne, we haven't even seen him do that. So I, I, I would not be shocked if he's out a couple more weeks and maybe even beyond uh, next month. Like we'll, we'll see. Uh, I know Suns fans are nervous about it. He's still around in a boot. Uh, but there, there's really no update there that brings any positivity. So that could play into this, Kevin. So if he's going to, let's say he's out six weeks, like can you afford six more weeks here? Your backup point guard just had his second 10-day expire. And he's yeah. gone. Saban Lee's second 10-day is expired. He's not back. He could come back later. But obviously he's not going to come back right now because the trade deadline is coming up and they want that extra roster spot for situations like this specifically. I think that for... I just can't help, and I know that Manuel Quickly and Jordan Clarkson are two far better players than Dwayne Washington Jr., but just to watch the Dwayne Washington Jr. situation unfold, I can't imagine that it, it would work with someone like Emmanuel Quickly and Clarkson. What I mean by that is, like, in the Suns system, but more specifically, like, Monty Williams was trust in them and, and, and that kind of thing. It, it just doesn't seem like their kind of player. Specifically, I do think Clarkson is worth it, it despite the stylistic uh, struggle there to find symmetry. He's still pretty great uh, for what they need, which is just offense creation on the ball. And then Vanderbilt is your third wing like that. You could not do any better than your third wing. I think he's a really underrated player. I think he's one of the better, if not one of the best uh, wing defenders, just perimeter defenders in the league. When you factor in his rebounding as well, he's a terrific rebounder. He's a very good passer. 
he's he's a Suns guy. If you were able to get Clarkson and Vanderbilt for a first and then another protected one, I would really think about it. But that would the thinking about it part would depend on how much Jones, Williams, Chris, Devin, like what they think about the Clarkson fit specifically on the court, because he would have to play with those two guys quite a bit for it to be worth it. And they would just need to there would need to be and an acceptance there. And of course, like with Mikel's on ball development in the last month and a half, they might not feel like that's as much of a need anymore. Uh, some more one-offs. Uh, hey, guess what, Kev? I'm still buying the Eric Gordon thing, the Eric Gordon stock. That's cool. Now people are talking about it more as a buyout now, but I'm into it. And uh, yeah, Josh Hart would work too. I'm, I'm cool with Josh Hart. Anyone else for you? No, that, uh, I guess I should mention, I don't know. The Pacers have a lot of good guards like, Chris Duarte's kind of been pushed out, but I don't know if that's more because he's more of what we thought instead of how he just blew up his rookie year. Um, I know we weren't like super, super high on him as a, were you high on him as a prospect? I don't know. No, he did not pass the year in holiday test. And that yeah. looks, that looked bad for us uh, after his rookie year. And now we're, we might be reaping some benefits here, not to uh, be happy about someone's demise. Of course, we wish that Quish, Chris Duarte makes 14 all NBA teams and makes us look stupid. We want everyone to, to succeed, but uh, he's yeah. kind of fallen Uh Benedict Matherin snatched up his soul in his playing time real quick. Yeah. So uh, is there someone else on that Pacers team? They're kind of good now. So that's I think, I think TJ is like too indispensable for them. Now he's under yeah. contract for two more years. And I think they really need him and really like him as they should. Yeah. yeah. He's, so he's, he's been, kind of off. He's been really good without Tyrese, by the way. Like, he's been doing stuff, man. Shout out, TJ. Yeah, the on-off splits I saw were were good in his favor. So, yeah, the Pacers were that team, but they're not really that team anymore. So, I, Duarte is probably one where it's like you take a flyer on him because he's shooting 30% from three, but he, he had a good season last year. So, I, I don't know. That's all I got, though. That That's the only addition I would say. Yeah, I think Gordon still has enough juice all on the ball. I wa- I've watched a little bit of Houston here and there, just keeping an eye on how he's moving. Um, and I just really like specifically how how uh, how he would gel with Chris Paul specifically and all the evidence there of those two being really great on the floor together, which goes back to a piece I wrote two two seasons ago now at this point. How long have we been talking about Eric Gordon? Josh Hart, similar thing to Vanderbilt, not as good of a defender, but the rebounding that he would bring at the wing spot. He's a Villanova guy, does a lot of the stuff that Mikel does. Uh, winning player who hasn't quite landed on like that winning situation just yet kind of in that P.J. Tucker role where it seems like once he finds his Raptors or his Sixers for P.J. right now that he'll, uh, he'll thrive in the way I think a lot of fans of him like myself uh, would expect shout out to him. He uh, spoke to me for that Devin Booker call of duty call him like four years ago. Shout out to how, him. how is he averaging eight rebounds a game? He's six, six four or six five before being nice. Like that's impressive. Yeah. They, they, they need that type of guy, whether it's Vanderbilt or Hart. I think Craig has been partially that guy for them, but those two were even like better rebounds than Tori. And that's saying something because Tori's a really, really good rebounder. Hey, Kev, would you trade Cam Johnson in a deal for OG and Adobe? Nah, I, uh, <laughs> oh, he's hesitating. I'd, I'd sit down and take a night to discuss it with my family. Um, I like OG a lot. And I think when you look at it, like, can't, okay. If you go deep in the playoffs, can Cam Johnson hold up for a seven game series against like Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, even if I'm like giving him the credit that he should deserve as a pretty good defensive player. I'm not sure. OG's a problem and OG gets you like past 
a lot of the worries about facing teams like the Clippers, those teams I mentioned, defending Chris Middleton if you get to the finals. Um, now you have to you have to hope that he can space the floor and be a good shooter consistently like Cam, because as we know, that's why that that move was made, right, with Jay, is having a shooter in that spot so important. Um, that's a tough one, man. Like, if it's straight one for one, I know the salaries don't match up right now. That That's something I would consider. And also, kind of relatedly, like, even if you're spending into the tax money, like, OG's contract is shorter opposed to extending cam. So that that's something that you think about sustainability and you, you wonder if that, that would be part of the equation there. But yeah, to me, that one's tough and I don't know the right answer. Honestly, here's the way that I've been thinking about it. Cam is a 10 out of 10 fit for what the Suns want to do how they like to get the certain types of players they like to get, what he does on the court, what he does off the court, all that kind of stuff. He is like the most system player that they have on the team. And the the amount of times I've mentioned this in the past, the amount of times that Monty Williams references him in terms of someone doing something right, the way they do it. He's that guy. Yeah. OG (laughs) is probably somewhere between like a seven and an eight. Maybe he's closer to a six and an eight. I don't really know specifically. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I've watched 14 Raptors games this year, and I can tell you how OG has really evolved off the dribble this year, Kev. Not going to pretend here. But what I will say is he is arguably the best perimeter defender in the league, and I watch Mikel Bridges every night, so for me to say that about someone specifically like him, it, it speaks to how great he is defensively. Obviously, from a size perspective, a little bit bigger, can handle those wings more. I don't think that the upgrade in his scoring, which off cam from like an off ball or off dribble kind of situation, it's not a, it's a upgrade, but it's not a huge upgrade. And I don't understand how him as the fourth option or even fifth option um, is that upgrade worth it. When you consider what his role is, which he's going to be shooting a lot of, threes and you're trading one of the best shooters in the league in this situation for that that specific role the defensive upgrade is obviously where you consider this but i i think there are questions there whereas if you're memphis kevin give up zaire williams and three first round picks you know like it just it just makes a lot more sense for other teams in their current situations to give up the treasure chest of assets for him because it seems like Toronto is going to want at least two pretty good first round picks and maybe they'll want three for him. Now, if we're talking about Siakam, Kevin, that's an entirely different conversation, but it does not seem like from the rumblings that we've been hearing out of Toronto for the last three, four weeks that someone like him, him being uh, Pascal Siakam is available. Now, would I trade Aiton for Ananobi? Uh, that's really interesting. It doesn't seem like we're headed there, but I think that is a lot more interesting what about John Collins, Kevin? One more name before we go. What do you think? Yeah. yeah, I mean, those OG and John Collins are kind of like, if you, and I can't see this team again for the Monty Williams reasons I talked about, I can't see this team going that direction. But if you train DA for one of those guys and you plug a jumbo wing, basically jumbo jumbo wing for Collins into the center spot, like he can rebound. Um, he gives you a lot more offense 
that that's a huge defensive liability compared to OG. But I, I think those two guys kind of in my mind are in the same conversation of it's, it's a clunky fit unless you get rid of DA and that's where it's like, I, I don't know why those teams would do either of those things. Exactly. Yeah. The way that I've been talking about it is I get excited thinking about how John Collins checks in off the bench as the first big. And again, this would be assuming John Collins will be willing to come here and come off the bench. I get excited about him coming off the bench as the first big. And then once Chris Paul and Cam Johnson come back into the game, I get really excited about like that trio specifically the pick and rolls with Chris Paul and Collins and then the off ball uh, value that Cam Johnson brings like those three, you can put them out there with almost any other two offensive players. And it would, it would, it would work. It would work really well. The problem is that that's going to happen for the 14 minutes that Deandre Ayton doesn't play. And now you got to find 14 more for Mr. Collins. And those are the 14 minutes that I'm worried about. And I'm not really so sure about, I will say Kevin that my, uh, you know, this uh, a lot better than uh, just about anyone that I've always felt that the Suns like traditional lineups. They like having two bigs. So this type of name, it makes sense to me from a stylistic standpoint, knowing what they like, or at least me believing I know what they like, um, is someone that would be interesting to them looking at someone like Collins who they could play two big lineups with. I don't know if they would start games with him necessarily, but again... The way that Collins is being talked about right now, we didn't hit on this, is is not like Ananobi. It's more of like you could get him for Crowder, Sarge, and two first-round picks maybe. Like someone could, could quote-unquote, steal him or get him for less than a value. And this is a guy who you go back to I, – I, Lowe was talking about this. You just think about John Collins being the guy that he was when they made the Eastern Conference Finals, right? Like he was a legitimate difference maker over that Atlanta playoff run and even dating back two, three years ago. But his numbers have not quite been there. This year, to say the least, he's shooting 51%. He's averaging 13.5 points per game. That's compared to 16, 18, and 22 and 20 the last four years specifically. His rebounding has been more or less the same. His free throws are around two and a half, three, so you're not getting that specifically. His three-point shooting has been the big drop. He's down to 26% this year after 36, 40, 40. The last three years, that's on three attempts per game. Now, I'm not I'm not quite sure uh, specifically what... Um, what the fit would be there. Do you want to do you want me? Can I say one crazy thing as we sign off? Yeah, I like it. Do crazy. I think Dylan Brooks is perfect. For the Suns? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the craziest. Uh, I heard uh, Lowe was talking about just like uh, the Grizzlies on his podcast with Tim McMahon last night. And it was just the, the idea I can't remember how he phrased it exactly, but it was like something like Dylan Brooks's name just came up and I was like, Oh man, like it just like the, the defensive pedigree, but also like the just nauseating shot making that he goes for like confidence, offensive creation guy, like first guy off the bench. Um, I think that he would be perfect and it's a really hot take. That's probably wrong, but I can't stop thinking about it and it's definitely not going to happen, but uh, they need, I mean, he's like Jay Crowder, smaller version of Jay Crowder, but with more ball handling to get into the just missed shots, just miss the rim type shots. I like it though. I like it for that reason. I'm I'm nuts. All right. Well, for those of you who are new ish to the podcast, newer to the podcast, we will be back as soon as a deal happens. Now, Matt Ishbia is getting introduced uh, as far as the reporting goes on the 8th, which is a week. 
from today. So with that coming in mind, or sorry, a week from tomorrow, that that's on Wednesday. So if, if there is something worthwhile coming back for from him, we'll come back from him. And then we will at the very latest be back uh, the day of the deadline and kind of run through everything and see what happens. But if any kind of trades happen, we will be in the, the gears will be in motion to get a podcast up as soon as possible and figuring it out from there. So we'll be back uh, then, Kevin. Any predictions before we go? Oh, is Jay Crowder getting traded? Let's do the game. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna say in the next. What did you say? Nine days. Nine days. Is it nine days? Sure. I think so. Maybe ten because I can't count, but <laughs> something like that. All right, everyone. We'll talk to you uh, when we talk to you. We don't know when, but we'll talk to you when we talk to you. Goodbye.